Hello and welcome to Speaks Lanham Words, episode 31. I am Dave Reed. Today I'm joined by our producer Elliot for a very special episode with Tim Dello, one of the founders of the wonderful Transgressive Records. This episode is for the music nerds out there. We talk records and we hear some great stories about the early years of Transgressive, who are coming up to their 10th year anniversary. As always, if you haven't, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash WarnerChapel UK and on Twitter at Warner underscore Chapel. And don't forget, Chapel is spelled C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L. Enjoy. It will be good. So... My first introduction to Transgressive was when I was at uni and um, Wincing the Night Away, ah, The yes. Shins came out, Yeah. and I saw the video for Phantom Limb and thought, well, I'm obviously going to have to go and, and buy that, and I went and got the seven-inch single ah, yeah, with, with, the, with the Polaroid, Polaroid. on yeah. the front, and I, I was looking at it thinking, well, Sub Pop, that makes sense, but who the hell are a transgressive because I'd never heard of you guys before yeah, that. That's that's fair. I think that was um that was really early on, wasn't it? Yeah that was that was um what's it that well we'd probably been going about maybe three years by the time we did that. But this is our tenth anniversary this year in September oh, wow. so it's like it's been going a long while. So for the Shins that was I think an amazing experience because they're I think one of the most important uh US bands ever really and what was what was really interesting about it and what we tried to do with that record I think it's nice you picked up on the on the seven inch with the Polaroid is that you had a band that were massive in the States and in the UK they didn't really feel like they hadn't come over loads there was no sort of sense of ownership and when we started talking to Sub Pop about it I'm in a situation where our first our first thought and feeling was to try and make them a transgressive band as we would all of them and when we start with all of our bands were always like you have to make an effort and you know give people a part of yourself and we thought a really easy way of doing that would be giving them a Polaroid camera and being like go crazy and making each record individual which has since become a bit of a marketing cliche I think but at the time it was it was quite an original one and um, it had only been done a few times by better people but <laughs> the pictures they did were really great and they did like they, they're really interesting um, artifacts and the guys really game and you know they came over and spent a lot of time here and really worked it and you know the management were fantastic to work with we kind of wrote up a plan of like what our fantasy would be to have the band over and they were like great we'll just try and make this happen for you and to their absolute credit they did and I think the previous two Shins records which had contained some pretty big songs you know that's something like New Slang I think yeah. that they'd done sort of six, seven thousand by the time we started working with the band and on Wincing the Night Away, we took that to like thirty-five thousand on no on that record, and so like all that effort and things really, really yeah. worked and felt really good, and yeah, it was a, a an amazing relationship and a really exciting thing for us to be a part of. Just a great band, mm. yeah, and that album especially, I think. I mean, yeah, when I think about like James Mercer is a, a total genius, and um, the stuff he's doing with Broken Bells now is in, incredible as well, but. I think Winston the Night Away is one of my favourite records he's ever done and the first Broken Bells album as well I think is, is yeah. incredible but like, it was a really exciting period to be working with him as well. He branched out a bit more around that yeah, time. Yeah, I, I think, think you is... know the, the ambition in that record was, was really there like Joe Ciccarelli who co-produced it with him is an amazing producer and the um, the feel of it was just more ambitious and spacious and I think what I love about his songwriting is it's kind of like when when you first hear classic Beach Boys oftentimes when they sort of got around Pet Sounds and Smile and things like that you 
you first time you hear a song, they don't go for the obvious melody. Mm. You, you, they sort of do this subversive melody. And the first time you go around, you think, oh, it could have just completed it in that way in my mind, which would have been more immediate perhaps. But then it's a slightly roundabout way through through a song, and and over two or three listens, it becomes all the more powerful for it. And I think that that record's like perfectly. You know, the first time I heard Phantom Limb, I was. Um, I was entranced and excited because I was a fan of the band anyway. The second time I was like, this is a brilliant song. The third time I heard it, I was like, this is one of the greatest songs ever. And now it's still a song that, you know, six or seven years after that, I'm still decoding and finding new things in. And, and yeah. that's, I think, what makes a really brilliant artist, like something that lives up to that test of time and takes those risks and pushes things. Yep. Well, I, I went back and dug out the singles like, the other day after, I, I, after we put the interview to come and sit down and talk to you. And I was like, yeah. I'll go back and listen to those, and they they do still hold up. Even um, is it the Australia single? Because yeah, I brought Australia's the follow up great. as well. Yeah, yeah. With the um, the B side that has an alternate groove. Yeah, so you can drop the needle at either place, and you don't know what the song's going to play. Yeah. So yeah, that I mean that again is something we were really trying to work on. We did another one um, uh, for no Sea Legs. We did as an EP, I think. One of them anyway. Maybe it was the other format of Australia because we were multi-formatting singles back then. Um, and we did, um, in the attempt as well, to bring them closer to our, our local roster as well. We had Polytechnic and Jeremy Wormsley, who we were working with, did yeah. a cover of two classic Shin songs and sort of tried to make it, you know, something really bespoke for this territory. And, and the band, you know, was so good at going along with those ideas and enthusiastic. So it's cool. Great, great records. Just absolutely yeah. awesome. Thanks again. How, how did the relationship with Sub Pop start? Um, relationship with Sub Pop started with. We, um, so we started Transgressive Records uh, as an independent, and then after a while of doing singles and things like that, we really wanted to go for albums and didn't have any money. Like we, you know, we started, yeah. you know, we started this label, well, this whole enterprise on um, my student loan and five hundred quid for my dad. And, Were you students? Um, uh, I was. Toby didn't didn't do the student thing. Okay. He's his uh, parents were uh, well, dad especially was particularly supportive, and drove him around. Um, just all over the place uh, to just different gigs and things like that and helps him kind of get his journalistic legs and he like promoted and things like that when he was sort of 15 and 16 and yeah. quit school at the first opportunity and wow. you know he wasn't he's not like from a rich background I think they just like really had a vision for his enthusiasm and that's talent amazing. and so that was quite exciting but that's you know we, we you know we used that as an, as an enabler and did that and um, so where was I uh Oh yeah, Shin Sub Pop. Mm. So we, having done that, we did the deal with Warner's after a while to basically help fund us do albums and things and do things internationally. And in the process of work, working with Warner's, we were um, kind of looking for credible ways to release our records internationally at the time because it was it was particularly hard. And obviously, we were releasing fairly like left field indie stuff in general. And so finding good partners were right. And we were like, well. Who has a relationship with Warner's that we should be talking to? Sub Pop's one of our favourite records. Sub uh, Warner's, I think, owned or do own a big chunk of it, and yeah. the relationship had, I think, realistically broken down quite a lot. And um, we were like, this, you know, this is one of the greatest relationships they have. We should try and pick it up. So we went out and saw John Poman, and um, sort of hung out there with them. Got on really well. They were really into uh, Foles. And so we basically did a swap for Foles and the Shins and started working on that. And then we ended up doing Iron and Wine for them 
uh, as well. And then recently, actually, a band that we publish uh, with you guys, uh, Thumpers, have been released by Sub Pop in the States on records now as well. So it's been a great relationship that kind of continues and works through. And, you know, it's, it's really good. I feel really good about it. Sub Pop's really cool. I was going to ask you, um, a fan of like, the Sub Pop history or the, the oh my God. stuff. So, like... I freaked out when I got there. Like, like Poman is an absolute legend and a, a gentleman. And was he, Bruce Pavick gone by the time you guys? Yeah, got yeah. Um, so um, we uh, like went over, hung out, and I remember like one of my favourite things is there's like the legend about who works in the warehouse and stuff, and the <laughs> warehouse is in part of their office. And I kind of went to the stock room. I was like, he was like, you know, do you want to do you want some records? I'm like, yeah. Definitely. Um, so I went around and I was like, that that guy there that's about to give me, does, is, is he in a band? And he was like, yeah, yeah, that's Mark Hard. I'm like, fucking hell it is. Mark Hard so Mud the only, the only thing that really sucked about that is as he was taking around being like, oh, what records do you want? How, you know, like going through, I felt like I couldn't take any Mud Honey records because it would be a bit like, yeah, I should own that. I should yeah, own that. But, I don't have every good boy deserve it. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, but you know, they're yeah, you know, they're good people to work with, and mm. it's, you know, it's fun. Done some good stuff. Hopefully, hopefully, do more with them in the future in some way. Great. Well, they're they're just one of those iconic labels, aren't mm. they? When, yeah, so, they're when you guys were starting Transgressive, were you influenced by like those? Yeah, labels, I think. Or? It's funny. Like my background, um, considering how uh, open-minded my tastes are now, and um, how sellouty I am, I guess not in a <laughs> Not in the you know, ethically true and responsible to all of our bands, but like open minded about stuff. I came from a really punk background. I was doing like uh, fanzines, DIY shows. I was in a math rock band that just toured relentlessly in the back of a, uh, a actual fiesta with a drum kit. It was hell. Um, wow. And we, um, <laughs> no, it wasn't that. <laughs> um, and uh, I was influenced by labels like Discord primarily, Touch and Go, uh, latterly like Constellation, things like that, real kind of like fuck you, no sellout, DIY things. And that was the kind of ethic that we took into this. And I think I was a lot angrier about then as well. Now, um, our ambitions for labels that I kind of look for uh, are different. I think now... I look at kind of classic era Ireland as thinking, you know, you had a label that had like King Crimson, Nick Drake, Grace Jones, uh, Bob Marley, Linton Quasi Johnson, really like different disparate artists who all had this sense of quality. And then when we started Transgressive, we were like, let's not have a musical policy, let's just sign good music. And that was actually another great bit of advice we got um, from another label legend, which was Seymour Stein from uh, from Sire. And he was like, you know, there's there's two types of music good and bad and don't overthink stuff just go with your heart and your gut reaction to how something makes you feel and I think that's you know driven our policy mm. so in terms of signing literally we'll, we will sign anyone from any genre as long as they're amazing and, and vital and integral and make you feel you know something yeah. <laughs> you know? and that's that's kind of what's led it and I think business wise now we're, you know we're really ambitious and I think the whole what we're trying to do across all of the companies and how transgressives di diversify and things is actually create a new model for the industry that isn't one that's like sort of moaning and complacent and upset about stuff and one which dry, you know drives forward and looks for solutions and looks to ultimately support artists reaching their, their main potential and doing that in a way that doesn't compromise their music that doesn't 
fuck about with what really matters but does get them paid and get them mm. to a good level mm. and that's what um, that's what we really strive for really mm. well you guys always seem to have a, an incredible relationship with your artists like a very mm. personal one on one like um, more of a friendship than a, a business relationship yeah times, I, that's but. I mean that's that's lovely lovely to hear I hope so I think um I think it was a thing when we started we were like oh we're never going to drop any artists or anything like that we we're always going to do it and mm. I think the the best the best thing that I, and I would hope that if you spoke to any artist that's ever been associated to, to transgressive whether they've been um, massively successful or not I would hope that they would always say that we worked really hard for them and we try really hard and that we're good people and I think that that's you know that's something we really push for like one of my my favorite um, relationships we ever had with the mystery yet they're like really special people proper friends and we did their first single there was a gap because at the time we were just a singles label and we couldn't sign them for albums and things like that and then we ended up publishing their third and fourth album and then we just released their um, uh, their live album last year from uh, live at the Royal Albert Hall Royal Festival Hall even uh, which is a really special record and you know I'm sure our relationship will continue with that band mm. in some iteration for you know when we're all really old and useless <laughs> <laughs> and that's um, you know that's that's really nice and exciting yeah. and something you know we strive for it's always a, an open door and we always you know try and try and help mm. The Mystery Jets live at the Royal Festival. That was there was only like five hundred copies of that. Yeah, so that's that was part of our tradition of uh, transgressive. We always try and have kind of um, actually started with started with Foles. We did these like live albums that are kind of outside of the canon slightly, and it started off um, when we were working with Foles. They were a really exciting hard live band. And we knew that the album that we were making with Dave Cetek was going to be a, a different thing. So we really wanted to capture that sort of first iteration of the band, kind of like, I don't know, Land Speed record or some sort <laughs> of, punk, you know, a proper punk record. So we did a like boshed out, a kind of like live mini album vinyl only thing. And then once we'd done that, we loved the idea and we thought, you know, we're going to start doing that um, with the bands that it makes sense for as often as possible. And it, it seemed like Record Store Day became a good thing to time for that. So we did. Uh, pulled apart by horses live at Leeds which was you know we had the hand stamp thing like the who one yeah. uh, we did uh, gaggle uh, which had 22 piece all girl choir they did a, a live rendition at the ICA of uh, um, a reworking of an opera from the 20s which was about the whole uh, uh, women's rights movement really through time which is like an amazing thing we did that for another one and did like an in-store at Rough Trade East on Record Store Day and then we kind of got more lavish and did this one which was uh, I think yeah 500 copies uh, it was double gold vinyl with a poster um, and what else was it uh, oh yeah a reproduction of the program from the night and it's a fantastic record I think actually it's the you know Mystery Jets I love as a band they're definitely one of my all-time favorite bands they're one of those bands I don't think have ever delivered a perfect album I think they've had brilliant perfect songs and the albums each album is worth owning all of them are brilliant but um, from a from a different reason they're all kind of slightly flawed in, in, a, in a brilliant way but nevertheless and that record 
I would say as an introduction to the mystery jazz. It's like cover to cover. Oh my god, I've got this brilliant song. I've got this brilliant song. What a great idea! And it's so over the top. It's got you know like a, a gospel choir on it, and Laura <laughs> Marlin comes out in duets, and Johnny from Tribe does Tribes does song like one of the most ridiculous guitar solos I've ever heard. And you know they really go for it. It's, it's a great it's a great performance, and it has a real energy to that recording, which I love. Um, this year we're not going to do a live album. We have one lined up, which was and is one of my favourite most important recordings I think we own but um, we had a few not really rights problems with it the, the management were quite up for it but the artist was a bit reticent to put it out at this stage in their career and which I, you know obviously we understand respect so we're not going to do a live on this year but we do have two really special records planned for Records Today which will more cool. than make up for it I think I love Records Today so, um, yes it's a good fun one I'm, I'm one of those guys who when Records Day still day rolls around I think I'm not going to go this year I'm not going to go queue up for three hours yeah, just I... to find that the records I want are gone but I said that last year and then I saw that Jack White introduction to Records Today did you see that? Uh, I don't think I did actually I think I might it's, miss that but Toby him. subscribes to the Third Man Record Collection Club so I'm sure that uh, he uh he went through went through that and saw all of that. Yeah. I saw that video and Jack White touring the, the record pressing plant and just thought to myself, I'm going to have to go, aren't I? I'm just going to have to go it's and addictive. spend money. I got some great stuff last year. There are a few things, a few things that annoy me afterwards. Like um, I got the last waltz last year, which you know mm. the definitive version of an, an incredibly important gig, um, and and I love and I paid stupid money for On Record Store Day and now it's been reissued almost yeah. exactly the same a year later yeah. and it's like, oh, damn it. And I did, I bought another stupid one as well, which I'd love, it's one of my favourite albums, Liquid Swords, the Genius album. Oh, I got yeah. that with like the chess set and the like, original pressing, the vinyl things I love, but that was like 70 quid. I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. I've just done it again, actually, not for Record Store Day, but they've reissued the Slint box, sure, which is just... I was just, gonna ask you about that. The shipping on it is $77 at the <sighs> cheapest option. I was just like, ah, but impulse buys but for Spiderland though yeah it's, I mean that is such a vital and important underground rock record yeah well I'm I, as a yeah massively influential on like d that album really did change my life and my direction and what I was doing it's really important I think you know I may not have made it yet but what is great about the job is I'm, I have made just enough that if I don't eat for a bit then I can splurge on records I already own now which is the, I think why anyone wants to work in the music industry yeah. <laughs> so is vinyl an important part of the transgressive culture um, yeah I think I think so I mean I think um, we've become slightly more pragmatic about music and the relationships and the responsibilities that you have like for us our responsibilities are for the artists first and doing what's right for them um, and the music is is the most important thing and I think you know I'm a I'm a fetishist of formats and things like that but at the same time it can't be at the expense of of the the music itself is that that's the kind of key thing that said I think it's the most pleasurable way to experience music I get um, personally speaking I do get like digital fatigue listening to stuff like in the office we listen to like we just plug in iPods and listen to music solely through there and it does get to a point where you start like zoning out or going mad and um, and I think there's something uh, near near religious about putting on a putting on a record, which is a, a a great experience. And certainly for me, we try and put out as much music as we physically can on vinyl. Um, so yeah, it is, it is an endeavour.
It's that physical engagement with vinyl. Mm. It's holding it, you know? Yeah. We, we, I feel like we miss that a little bit with, with the internet and mm. digital mm. stuff. Like having something mm. tangible yeah. in your hands. But, but sometimes to, like, yeah, have to have it. Like, we did this Africa Express record, which is amazing. And um, it was um, uh, Two Inch Punch, Brian Eno, uh, Damon Orban, and Nick Zinner. Um, and some other guys went out to Mali for a week and recorded an album in a week with loads of local musicians who are some of the most talented, talented people that we've we've ever had the honour of, of releasing. Um, and because it was done in a week and that was kind of the spirit of it and we were talking to Damon about it and, and the Africa Express team, they were like, we really want to get this out hard and fast. So we did a digital literally two weeks afterwards. It was It nearly killed us, but it was a lot of effort to do it digitally and we still haven't released the vinyl yet but a vinyl is coming and for that kind of thing it's like the logistical time sorting out and getting all the artwork right and things like that it can it can take a delay and it is a labour of love but yeah. it's a really special thing that deserves yeah. to occur and I think that's the kind of the tag if something deserves to happen then we'll try and make it happen basically what's your favourite transgressive vinyl that you've put out that, that you hold and you God. feel so attached to it um that I mean that mystery jets one is really special. Um, I think um, as an as an object, um, I didn't you know. M this is an interesting one as well. Musically, I had a lot to do with this album in terms of the object itself, not so much. But I think that the the holy fire uh, edition, the first box that came out, is that that's a really special object. Um, and I think that, that you know that works really well because uh, what I don't like is when people just over package stuff with no extra content and stuff, and that is like a really engrossing overall experience. I love um, love that gaggle choir record. That's really cool. Some of the seven inches we've done crazy things with seven inches. Um, Graham Cox and Spinning Top. That's a beautiful record. Um, Pulled apart with horses live leaves with just the set list and the photo from the thing that was really cool. Um, what else? We've done tons. I really love actually a really early one. We did the last ever pill session, which is this hardcore band called, uh, well, growing called Cassio growing called technically band called uh, Trencher. Um, we did that on a 10 inch, which is like cow coloured. There was a split with like four other indie labels, and that was really good. Um, Zoo Time, first Mystery Jet single, where we did like. It had a, a newspaper and a dinked front cover, which was like a cog, and each one was hand numbered. They did that sitting in my crappy flat in King's Cross, which is boxes everywhere. And um, it's amazing the stories uh, behind all of them as well. It's just yeah, I'd have to. We should sit down. We should go up to the library afterwards and just like flick because there's been tons of great stuff. Like so many records that I love. Like with just the you know. Oh, actually, I'll tell you what. Maybe my favourite, uh, possibly. Uh, it's definitely in my all-time top ten albums is uh, at the drive-ins relationship of command and um, we did that uh, last year on uh, double orange vinyl gatefold it's a beautiful package it sounds it's like an amazing cut um it's fucking heavy it's got <laughs> got iggy pop guesting on it you can't really <laughs> fail with that it's, yeah. it's a, you know it's, it's such an important album and that's mm. one of the most influential albums ever our first ever reissue in fact and really? i think um with you know you know, we had to. We were like, we're not going to become a reissues label. But we, you know, that was a an album you make an exception for. Yeah, you guys have an incredibly varied mm. roster. Like everyone from 
But the gig that we went to on Monday mm. is a perfect example because it started off with Cos- Cosmo Sheldon, yeah, like, yeah. who is a genius. <laughs> well, from I'm what glad I can to tell. Yeah, yeah, he, I think he certainly is. I mean, the, the inventiveness of a man that can use the sound of the sun. Yeah. And his throat music. singing as well and stuff yeah. like that as well. It's just like this crazy. Is intriguing, this is. He's, yeah, he's, he's batshit. It's brilliant. <laughs> he's, he was incredible. I mean, I, I don't think I would have. I think I'm the kind of person that if I got hold of a recording of The Sound of the Sun would not even think mm. about using it in music. I would think, well, that's a recording of The Sound of the Sun. Mm. That Great. stays as it is. Mm. There's nothing more I could well, do that's what's that. intriguing about Cosmo. I mean, at the moment, we're just doing a 7-inch with him on Paradise as singles imprint. Um, but what I love about him is his um, combination of ideas and songwriting. It's... Um, you know, it's, I love a lot of really, you know, like everything from like Gavin Bryars through to like Daphne Oram. Like I love like experimental music, mm. but what I love about him is he's taken things that are in themselves worthy exercises sonically, and combine them with uh, an amazing love of the tune, the tune, and, and that aspect of how that makes you feel, and then. As if that would that would be great as just instrumental music. On top of that, he's had a kind of like lyrical consideration, which tries to really combine all of those elements, and that is sheer genius. I think it's um, it's kind of a, a triple threat. <laughs> but it's um, it's uh, it's stupid, but he's yeah, he's great. So, it's, um, but that was that was contrasted immediately after by Marika Hackman. Yeah. Well, there's a common link between those two. I mean, Marika. I th- yeah, she is another genius. I think um, I've been being kicked in the office for it because I think she might be my favourite artist we've worked with. Possibly, she's like uh, ridiculously talented for someone as kind of like young as her, really, to be writing songs with that kind of lyrical depth and imagination and difference and worldview, and then combining that with an incredible production. Like you know. She would be great as, you know, you saw her just with an acoustic guitar and that is amazing and captivating and has so much out there. But then when you see her perform with an electric guitar, what she does with loops is incredible and that would be enough. And then when you hear what she does with production and song interpretation, she does a lot of great covers and things as well. Mm. But those, that, that thing is, as well, all of these things are, are next level. When you combine them into one artist who's then an awesome person, it's, um, it's humbling really. And that's like, that's what we love is just finding genius and I'm trying to work with them, but the common link between Cosmo and Marika is uh, Johnny Flynn, who I think has been, um, I think, one of the most important artists that we've ever worked with. And um, actually, maybe every one of his records is really special. All three vinyl edition, four, if you take the soundtrack that we put out as well, they're all really special objects. One's like pop up vinyl, um, <laughs> another one's like gold embossed, and has no, no one's decoded the story behind that cover, to my knowledge. Um, and it's only through like long conversation with Johnny that I've been given a glimpse at it because he's a he's a true artist and that everything that he does is painting into a wider myth in the way that like Dylan did or something like that. And the 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 links record on record and depth that you can go to with his his lyrics are the be- the best in the world. I don't I can't think of a better lyricist than him that living really. Um, Tom Waits. Like I, like I, the praise I have for this man, I think is uh, I can't I can't be firm enough. I think it's just a matter of time before more and more people realise that. And album on album, that is that is gradually starting to happen. But he um, 
he found both Cosmo and Marika, um, and so he's kind of our greatest a and I guess, as well. Also, wow. Dry the River, he found as well. Really? Like, yeah. And although we didn't sign her, she's an incredible, incredible artist as well. Anna Calvi as well, Johnny was like, that's another artist you should find. And uh, sign, I think it's because of the, the group of people that seem to identify with Johnny at this point are his peers, really. And I think when they, you know, they come to him because they see a kind of purity and uh, commitment to vision in what he does and lack of compromise, mm. which... Um, which resonates, and that's that's really appealing because, it, you know, other artists who know that we'll sort of support that way of being and go the long run with them will then come to us as a music company as well, which is nice. Great. Wasn't Johnny Flynn um, Toby's flatmate at one point? Yeah, Johnny did live with Toby for a bit. Also, there was this party house in... Uh, in it was basically Toby's first house he moved out of, and it was in Camden, and it started off him and Jeremy Wormsley um, just because we were working together living together it made, it made sense mm. and then Johnny took the other room so it was the three of them for a while then Tom uh, Rogerson who's an incredible talented artist he's in Three Trap Tigers who are amaz- amazing about and he is in, you know as a musician technically the best I think I've met um, and then uh, Yanis, because he was coming down from Oxford all the time as well from Foles, he just basically started just squatting in the front room, and the whole it was, it was simultaneously the best and worst place. There was one house party which we did, and we filmed for our TV show where we got um, Shingy from the Noisettes playing with Jeremy Wormsley, accompanied by Faye on drums, who's now in Savages. Um, with uh, the headline band was Future to the Left and uh, the whole of the floor, it was so full of people, was bowing in the middle and the police came and shut it down and stamped over with this noise order, which meant that he couldn't put on the party for three years or face jail in the Camden Baron. But um, we got away with that. Wow. And, we filmed, and we filmed it all, so it was great TV. I can forward it over to you. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I'd love to see that. Yeah, yeah. Toby's the ballsy one. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have... Uh, no, no. no. Wow. But, you know, it's amazing it's where, house. like, you know, years of hard work. You know these you, these people go on to like, do different projects and yeah. things, and they all come through. And it's just I mean, Faye from really Savages, cool. like we first met, she was doing. Um, uh, she first talked to us. She wanted to make the first noise. That's video. She's a filmmaker. She's made some great film things, and she, she, you know, she went through and did a bunch of projects before before Savages. And it just takes on takes a while to yeah. to get there. You know, she's made loads of great videos for us and stuff, and you know, brilliant. Got some, so how did you and Toby meet? Like, uh, Toby and I met at... Um, Toby was promoting, as I said before, at uh, the Buffalo Bar, and he put on... Uh, it was an amazing lineup. It was uh, Gordon Raphael, who produced The Strokes, uh, Block Party, and um, uh, Regina Spector wow. as, a, as a lineup. And I was mates with um, Kelly from Block Party, originally through the Billy Mahoney message board which is very geeky post-rock thing but we ended up just flukely going to uni together becoming friends and when he came to do his first single I was like we sh- no one else was really interested in putting it out and so I did the first block party single with my then bandmate on another label and I was trying to flog this record to Toby and he was trying to charge me to get in and we were like hmm <laughs> this could work we were both like the only people like Toby at the time was like seventeen, I was eighteen. We were like, no one else is really doing this in our in our peer group. We should yeah. meet up. And honestly, we we went and had a pint at this pub uh, right by Hoban, 
um, well it turned into a few pints and um, we planned the first three releases at the end of that and we just like yeah let's just do it on a 50-50 handshake and kind of bullied him into it a bit because he was like record labels are dead it's all about the internet and shit like that which is true like in a lot of ways but we just thought we'd do it in a unconventional fashion and I think it's Toby's like sort of clarity of vision and ambition which is why we do so much like media stuff as well and that supports things and then I've really like kind of come to the fore of that and he's brought me out of my show and that thing and it's this kind of conflict between the two of us and how we argue that help decisions work really well but now it's great because like the team now is like more exciting than ever we've got uh, Leela who you guys know who's like a label manager and partner and she's you know she runs it she's the boss and incredible and uh, nails so much stuff um, we've got a guy called Steve who does he used to be the drummer in Lovers and he like um, just is really good kind of vibes man that like thinks about different projects and things that we should be doing and pushes us in different directions and things and, and challenges us as well because he's kind of got that punk heart still which is really good <laughs> got a guy called uh, Mike who's our first ever A&R guy who's really on stuff and has found, found to be honest like the last bunch of our signings uh, he found Theme Park uh, Blind Ave and Fami and when I think about like the first things that I was signing and my approach to music and things like that he's he's better already really and he just needs like nurturing and learning how to make multiple al- albums and dealing with sort of artist challenges to to kind of get to that point and you know we're just we're you know we're growing as a company and it's all good people and people that we've had relationships with along for a long while and and yeah so it's good awesome yeah. should probably wrap it up yeah. cool. cheers for doing thanks this, very much yeah. thanks, thanks.